0: Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, are you ready to kick off part two? Absolutely, Preston. I think
1: this conversation that we've been having with Steve Powells from Australia is a great conversation. In the last episode, if you didn't catch it, we talked about his background and his history and how he went from being a high school dropout to one of the world's foremost experts on herbicide resistance in weeds.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating story. Uh, I liked Steve's perspective. He had a quote, he's kind of known for this quote that goes, when you have a good thing going, don't stick with it. Uh, It's a little bit of a counterintuitive quote, but it really applies to, you know, resistance management and cropping systems. So I think you listeners are going to really enjoy this last conversation with Steve. Without further ado, let's jump right in.
1: Let's get back to the weeds a little bit. And you mentioned Roundup earlier, glyphosate. And that system, Roundup is a a non-selective herbicide for our listeners out there. It basically kills everything or or it did when it was created. And then crops were genetically modified in order to be resistant to the Roundup. So we were able to spray Roundup on the crops, and it basically would kill everything out there uh, with no exceptions. And that system was very successful for quite some time, but at some point you started to see some cracks in the armor of that system, is that correct?
2: Yes, uh, Roundup, as you say, glyphosate, Roundup. The chemical is glyphosate. Uh, Roundup um, is, is its uh, uh, name by uh, now Bayer, but Monsanto, but it's also got a lot of other names. In my opinion, I've seen a lot of herbicides and it's the best herbicide that i have encountered it's as you say very effective on a wide range of weed species used in everything from national parks to backyards to suburban parks through mainstream agriculture Uh, very environmentally benign just a great herbicide and had a lot of uses but as you said It couldn't be used in crops because it's non-selective, but then Monsanto introduced genetically engineered Roundup-resistant crops. The first one was uh, soybean in the United States in 1995, and they were an instant success. And the adoption of Roundup-ready crops in the United States is, I believe, the fastest most widespread adoption of any agricultural innovation ever. So, within a few years, as you said, just about all of the corn and soybean and cotton in the United States was roundup ready. I remember giving a talk once in the US and, the, and extolling the virtues of diversity in agriculture. And there was a good farmer speaker on the Panel with me, and he said, I've got diversity in my farming system. I grow corn, soybeans, and cotton. I grow Roundup Ready corn, followed by Roundup Ready soybeans, followed by Roundup Ready cotton. <laughs> and uh, that might have been diversity, but it wasn't herbicide diversity. And I said, You're going to get Roundup resistant weeds. And at that point, which was probably about 2003, most farmers in the United States and many of those advising them and some of the companies did not expect that the weeds would evolve resistance to Roundup or glyphosate. But I knew they would because in 1998, I published the first paper showing a weed evolving resistance to roundup and that was a weird here in Australia where the, the particular situation the farmer had applied roundup every year so I knew it would occur and I tried to warn lots of people in the US but the technology was too good the ease of use was too good and farmers and their advisors uh, and the companies all supported that use, which was basically a great technology overused.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, it was nearly the perfect chemical there for a few years. It, it killed pretty much everything, and it was environmentally friendly. I mean, there aren't too many crop protection products that are as environmentally friendly and safe for the users as Roundup is and has been. Correct, correct. Obviously herbicide resistance is a big problem. Farmers are very aware of it now, industry is very aware of it, academics are very aware of it. The attitudes have definitely changed to a certain extent where people understand the value of using different active ingredients and and mixing things up. But that's not necessarily the whole picture when we talk about weed control. I mean, we have some other technologies here in the US on areas that are maybe organic and and things like that. There's different mechanical ways that they control weeds, using cover crops, sometimes other things. I understand there's a concept that's probably more well-known in Australia than it is here, but can you talk a little bit about harvest weed seed control?
2: Yes, I can. Harvest weed seed control. Before telling uh, your listeners about that, yes, herbicide resistance is really a significant problem, but it is an entirely manageable problem. And the way to manage it is with diversity. And I can hear your listeners thinking, well, that's easy to say and hard to do. (laughs) But diversity just means using all the sensible, different strategies that a farmer can use and advisors can advise and researchers can research. So the first Part of that is practicing diversity with the herbicides that are used. It's what I have always said. When on a good thing with a herbicide, change it. (laughs) If you're getting great weed control with a particular herbicide, change it. Mix it up. Change it while it still works to give the best chance of that herbicide working on your farm in the longer term. So practice herbicide diversity. And our farmers in Australia, because of widespread resistance, have had to do that. But we've also had to look for alternatives, pragmatic, sensible, economically acceptable alternatives to herbicides in agriculture. And that has been a bigger hurdle in the United States. In the US, I once gave a talk in the US where I talked about what I called HOS, HOS, H-O-S. And what does that stand for? (laughs) Herbicide-only syndrome, in which many in the US in agriculture think only of herbicides, HOS, herbicide-only syndrome when they think of weed control. And yet, as you said, there are many other things that can make sense and can reduce our reliance on herbicides. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a firm believer in the use of good, environmentally acceptable herbicides. It's just that I would like to see them used as part of a system not the entire system. And so what we have learned is that we should diversify our herbicide use and we should use any non-chemical tools that make economic sense. And one of those that we have developed in Australia, and when I say we, I mean farmers, I mean researchers, uh, myself and many others, And we have developed what we call harvest weed seed control that is now widely practiced by grain growers in Australia. Now, what is harvest weed seed control? Many of the weeds, not all of them, but many of the weeds hold their seed right through to the time of grain harvest. And what happens in modern combine harvesters is that, The harvest operation removes the weed seeds when it removes the crop seeds. It keeps the crop seeds in the combine harvester and it spits out all of the weed seeds, evenly spread across the paddock field so that the farmer can spray it with herbicide in the following year. That never happened for our forefathers. Early, before modern combine harvesters and herbicides, farmers would do what it takes to not let weed seeds return to the weed, to the crop field. With the advent of combine harvesters and herbicides, it was more economically sensible to just harvest everything and let the weeds come out the back. Uh, so harvest weed seed control is a term which describes a whole lot of different techniques that tries to minimize or prevent those weed seeds returning to the field. And I could go through some of those with you. Uh, they have proven to be very effective uh, and most or many of our farmers now practice weed seed control techniques. Um, I can describe them to you if you would like.
0: Yeah, I think absolutely.
2: So harvest weed seed control, Started in its most simple form by farmers just putting uh, a, a metal chute on the at the at the rear end of the combine harvester that funneled the chaff and straw fraction into narrow windrows, and that contained the weed seed that was mostly in the chaff fraction, and then those narrow windows were burnt and that uh, destroyed most of the weed seed and from that we learnt that our weed numbers were being reduced we were still using herbicides but we found that by doing that we could reduce our weed numbers because we weren't letting weed seeds return to the field that had some disadvantages that we were burning that's not a good thing in many situations. And so other techniques were developed, funneling just the chaff fraction because our studies established that most of the weed seed was in the chaff fraction, funneling that into, for example, narrow a narrow windrow which could be just left or sprayed, or funneling it onto the tram lines where the where the machinery is moving, those have proven to be very successful. A small number of farmers just bailed with a baler all that material and fed it to livestock, uh, through then to the, the most sophisticated one, which is a, 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 a mill, which is now mounted in the back of the combine harvester, which intercepts the chaff fraction containing the weed seeds, and then destroys it and spits that material out. So uh, different farmers use different of these techniques depending on their farming operation, but all of them harvest weed seed control in which we are intercepting and destroying weed seeds in the harvest operation. And that has proven to be very effective and is widely adopted in Australian agriculture. And I'm pleased to say is starting to be adopted in US agriculture. Some good researchers in the US have picked up on it and it is now starting to be adopted. And I'd encourage your listeners to think about that as part of their, if they're grain farmers, their grain farming operation.
1: So I I remember several years back, going to an agronomy day at a university and seeing some of this, some talk about some of this technology and thinking that just doesn't seem like something that will ever be adopted here. But it's good to hear that there is starting to be some adoption of something that can take the pressure off some of our herbicides. And as you mentioned, it's not about eliminating the herbicides, it's about keeping them as a tool for longer.
2: That's correct. And uh, let let me describe one situation, which I think Uh, is a good example. When uh, Roundup-resistant weeds first became evident, it was in the southern states of the US, as you would know, and uh, particularly, for example, the state of Arkansas. And those farmers, they had this horrible Palmer pigweed, and it was Roundup-resistant. And they had to go to the very expensive uh, practice of getting hand weeding teams in there to physically pull out those Palmer pigweeds. I reckon that pigweed is well known. It's a pig of a weed, and they had to pull them out. Uh, that was very expensive, but they found that, that their weed numbers of Palmer amaranth were much reduced by this hand weeding. What were they doing? They were practicing harvest weed seed control. And that showed the value of not letting weed seeds return to the field. Of course, hand weeding of big cotton and other fields is not economically uh, possible and nor is it ever possible in this country. But that's why we started to think about mechanical ways of doing it. But that experience of hand weeding farmer pigweed out of Arkansas cotton fields uh, started s- some researchers and farmers in Arkansas to realise that harvest weed seed control was a good thing to do. And uh, and the development of, of the techniques of harvest weed seed control. And some US growers are doing it and there would be some good researchers and advisors in the US who could talk uh, more knowledgeably about what's happening in the US i can't because covid has prevented me going to the us for a couple of years but uh, there are plenty of good advisors who are work and researchers working on it and if i was a farmer us farmer listening to this talk in a funny accent from australia <laughs> i would Go and talk to my farm advisors about the opportunities uh, for adopting harvest weed seed control on my US farm.
1: Yeah, it's interesting now that you mention it, Steve. Uh, there are a significant amount of farmers that will go around and pull out those water hemp or pigweed that are out in their field at harvest time, and you know put them in a garbage bag or something like that and get them out of there because they are very aware of what one single plant can look like in the following year.
2: Yeah, so they're out hand pulling those survivors, and I'd say to them when they go back home at the end of the day after that arduous and unenjoyable task of hand pulling out either water hemp or palmer pigweed, and their loved ones say to them, What did you do today? they should answer, I practiced harvest weed seed control because <laughs> that's what they are doing. <laughs> And they just need machinery
0: to do it. I've got a follow-up question, but real quick, I wanted to just highlight a few minutes ago, Steve, you mentioned you you had a catchphrase that I thought was very fascinating. So I think you said something along the lines of when you're on a good thing, change it up or don't stick with it. I think that's, I I really appreciate that. And it's kind of just counterintuitive to, you know, how I think typically from a you know an insect or a pest management standpoint um maybe Jason maybe that should even be the title of our podcast <laughs> for for uh this episode but i guess circling back around i'm kind of curious so what's the likelihood that weeds will adapt to some of these mechanical control measures is this a is this a foolproof method
2: harvest weed seed control is not a foolproof method and no form of weed control is a foolproof method that will work forever uh, that is why the single best thing that i've ever said in my long career is when on a good thing with weed control change it uh, especially herbicides but also harvest weed seed control uh, now we don't uh, advocate that harvest weed seed control uh, will ever replace herbicides. It's a practice to use to reduce our reliance on herbicides as part of an integrated system, diversity. But if the only thing we do, or if we practice harvest weed seed control all of the time on every field, we will get weeds avoiding harvest weed seed control. And we've already got some early indications of that in Australia where Weed species that uh, can shift and and seed and earlier and drop their seed earlier will do that. Others will grow along the ground so they get below the height that the seed is can go into the combine harvester. They'll use all of the tricks available to them uh, just as they've been able to overcome herbicides, they can overcome harvest weed seed control. That's not a reason not to use harvest weed seed control it is a reason to practice diversity and and when on a good thing change it so yeah weeds can evolve resistance to any tool you know one of the best examples uh, was a long time ago in india where uh, some of the uh, weeds um, a prominent uh, weed that they would got um, they decided to develop uh, rice with red stems so they would have rice with red stems which would enable them to hand pull the weeds the grass weed out of the um, the red stem rice and that worked quite well until the weeds started having red stems And that's just an example of when on a good thing stick to it and uh, the weeds evolve uh, red stems and overcome that trick and so harvest weed seed control is no different just like the next new butte herbicide is no different it's not a reason not to use herbicides it's not a reason not to use weed seed control it's a reason to practice diversity within economic reality
1: that's a great point and it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that you know as you mentioned the seeds stay on the plants through harvest when we're talking about weeds generally it doesn't take too much of a stretch to imagine that the seeds that fall off the plants earlier would have an advantage and would become the dominant population if we just stick with the one method of control, just like you mentioned.
2: Yeah, and this is uh, this is the message that is, that is given by many excellent uh, weed scientists in the US. Um, I won't name names, but at many of the mainstream land grant colleges that's the message that's being given by really excellent uh, people in the u.s and i hope that the u.s farmer will listen to those messages and reduce their hoss herbicide only syndrome and practice a bit more diversity within economic reality and they'll find it's quite possible they'll find it's quite possible that's what our australian farmers find I mean, if they had the choice, they would continue to use the same herbicide. But they've learned that they have to diversify and they have to practice some non-herbicide techniques. And by gosh, they've found they can make it work. And their weed numbers have come down and they're farming profitably. And herbicide resistance is an entirely manageable problem, but not by ignoring it, facing it head on and on your farm in your situation, working out how to diversify within your economic reality.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. And the economics always play into it. Steve, thank you so much for being so generous with your time here today. We have a a couple more questions for you. One is you've given several nuggets of advice for students and young people here throughout this conversation, but uh, do you have any other advice for a young, young man or young lady that's coming out of high school, starting on his or her career, interested in a career in agriculture or in some other field, what kind of advice do you have for them?
2: First thing is, don't drop out of high school. That's not a good idea. (laughs) Uh, uh, Assuming that that, um, the young man or woman has finished um, high school and is contemplating and has the opportunity to go on to further study Uh, then obviously I would encourage it. Not everybody has that opportunity in life. Um, It is a great privilege if one is in a situation uh, able to go to university through the generosity of their parents or family. If you are a young man or woman leaving high school and have the opportunity to go to university, then go is my advice. Uh, going to university is a great, uh, a great thing in life. It will open up uh, your mind. Um, it will enable you to learn and have good fun at the same time because university is also about a lot of good fun. And uh, take that opportunity, study uh, what you are interested in, trust your judgment listen to your parents and teachers and other people in your life uh, who've got advice for you but also trust your own judgment it's hard to know what the future might hold for you you might think at age 18 that you want to be a jet fighter pilot but you in fact may not end up being one You may think you want to be a farmer, but you may change during university. So um, keep your options open, in my opinion. Uh, Take uh, general subjects so that you get further uh, education in the basics like maths and chemistry and the like. And uh, during your university, you may solidify on what you want to do in life. Follow your passions, even though at the time the pathway may not be evident to you. I think my own experience has been that if you work hard and if you use your brains, then you can create opportunities for yourself. Above all, I would say to you, Jason and Preston, that my own experience really has shown the transformative power of education. So I would encourage any young person that who is fortunate enough that they have the opportunity to go to university to do so. For those that don't have that uh, opportunity, whose circumstances are such, and after all, that is most of humankind around the world, who don't have the opportunity to go to university, there are opportunities to educate yourself in various ways and take those opportunities within your um, circumstances to open your mind up because education is transformative. It has been so for me and it doesn't mean that all of your practical knowledge and understanding are not equally important, they are, but education, is just another tool to add to your skill set and um, therefore take every opportunity for education, follow your passions, uh, use your brains, and work hard and uh, you'll succeed in life.
0: That's great advice, Steve. And as Jason said, we really appreciate your time here today. My last question I guess just to wrap up the podcast here you've had a storied career but looking forward what's the most exciting thing from your perspective about the future of agriculture
2: Well I'd wish I was 30 again there's lots of uh, <laughs> exciting things happening in agriculture and and uh, and many of them are in technology we live in an age of unfettered technology developments and many of those technology developments have opportunities and are being applied in agriculture. Let me just give you one or two examples. Uh, Right now, I know a lot about herbicides and we spray every square foot of every field with a herbicide, regardless of whether there's a weed on it or not. And that is wasteful use. Of a great chemical resource. And yet, modern technology is going to enable us to identify sensors that are going to be able to identify weeds and tell the sprayer to turn on a nozzle and spray that weed, so called targeted spraying, or precision agriculture. And that is going to reduce the amount of chemical. We use per acre and target it just where it's needed. And that technology is coming, and some of it is here right now. We're going to be able to do the same and can do it with fertilizers. And what are these examples? They're examples of the technology that's being developed in other fields being applied into agriculture. So there's lots of exciting uh, technological developments to add to our basic important skills of crop and livestock husbandry to mean that uh, uh, agriculture is and has to be highly productive. It has to be highly productive because the world population continues to grow. And if we are going, if we, those of us involved at many different levels in food production are going to feed 10 billion people, uh, while still retaining some natural ecosystems and some untouched areas, we're going to need all the technology and brains that we can muster. So uh, any young person contemplating a career in agriculture is going to have some wonderful opportunities. And I wish I was 30 years old and joined you and worked with you for the next 40 years. There are lots of great opportunities. Go for it.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. Steve, if there's something you know that maybe struck a chord with one of our listeners here today, they maybe want to reach out to, to you or, or learn about what you do, I guess. Is, is there some way, are you on social media where people can follow you, uh, kind of a link to some of your research? Uh, what would you recommend for someone wanting to learn more about this topic or about yourself?
2: Uh, if any of you, uh... Any of your listeners, uh, young or old, student or battle hardened farmer or crop advisor, or anyone else wants to uh, follow up with me, you are very welcome to do so. Um, I'm uh, a bit addicted to Twitter, so you can find me at SB Pals, that's spelled P O W L E S, or by email, email. Preferably, a quick Google search will find me, but um, uh, my email address is stephen with a ph.pals at uwa.edu.au. Google me and you'll find me, and uh, I'd be happy to listen uh, and respond to anyone who wants to contact me. I got a special affection for the United States, its people, and its agriculture because I went there as a callow youth in uh, 1975. I was very well treated by everyone that I came into contact with in the United States. I've been back to the U.S. many times. I know many great people in the U.S. I know it's a great place and anything I can do to help U.S. agriculture, I will do.
0: Well, Steve, once again, we really appreciate your time here today. Enjoy the rest of your day in Australia. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you, Jason and Preston. Thank you for making your time and interviewing me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I hope it'll lead to some other discussions. But thank you for choosing to contact me way down here in Australia. And uh, I'm very appreciative that you've done so. So thank you.
1: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.